All right, as you guys are standing up, if you want to turn in the Blue Bibles to page 596, we're going to be reading Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And as I was looking over this, it's a special passage to me because it's one that uh, brought me to faith. So um, let's read this together. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself with the shame of your nakedness, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those, who I might, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kyler. How are we doing this morning? Good. good. Elena's good. My name's Josh. I get to unpack. Uh, what, the way we're doing this is I've got to cover two chapters, chapter two and three. We just read the final church, but we're going to cover seven churches. I promise you I won't go through every single word, but we're going to cover a lot. It's, here's our goal with Revelation is to give us a forest view of the book of Revelation and specifically what the Spirit is trying to do then with the original audience and now with us in this room. And here's how I want to kick it off. It is football season. The Watt teams are doing well on Saturday. Thank you for asking. Coach Watt is nearing his prime on youth football coaching. I'm getting in my sweet spot. I won two out of three. I think uh, Elijah's team is undefeated. The other two are one and one. So we're doing good. But uh, it's college football on Saturday, NFL on Sunday. The Cardinals are on today. And I was Googling over the weekend, what's the hardest stadium to play in for an opposing team? Any ideas on which NFL team has the worst stadium for a visiting team? Almost across the Cardinals is terrible for both home and visiting fans. Uh, but this is uh, the Eagles. It is the, by far uh, the worst fan base in all of America, unless you're an Eagles fan. Everyone else, it is like the harshest place. They throw batteries at you. They've booed Santa Claus out of the stadium. Michael Irvin broke his neck in a season-ending and almost life-altering injury, and they cheered relentlessly for their rival Dallas Cowboy receiver. It is a terrible place to play. And I thought, what about college? It's college season, lots of great games on last night. So the University of Washington, the Huskies in Seattle, they're one of the worst places to play, mainly because the sound that that stadium can produce. I think they set the world record for stadium sound at like 137 decibels. So in the church world, if you get like in the high 90s, that's when the people come knocking and ask Chandler to be fired because it's getting too loud in this place for anybody to function. It's like 97. If you're in the 110s, you can listen to it for a few minutes. If you're above 120, it's like if you listen to this for longer than 30 seconds, for sure you're doing ear damage. And that place rocked out at 137 decibels. What a place to play. Why do I start with football? A, I love it. And B, I think it's fitting for the book of Revelation. Namely, here's what Revelation is reminding us of, especially in this section here, is that we Christians are the visiting team. We're the opponents. We're not Philadelphia people in Eagle Stadium. 
We're the Cowboys coming into Eagle Stadium. We are the opposing team. That's just what Revelation wants us to know. That Christians, here's what being a Christian is. It's being against the grain of how society works. Until glory and when the king returns to give you what he promised to give you for your faithfulness on this earth. That's what we're in. This is what Revelation is trying to do. Francis Schaefer, Schaefer is an old hippie guy. He's passed away, but he was very popular, 60s, 70s. He asked this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And his answer was this, decades ago, the meaning of the word Christian has been reduced to practically nothing. Because the word Christian as a symbol has been made to mean so little, it has therefore come to mean everything and nothing all at once. Like if you would ask people around you, what are you? A lot of people would say this, I'm a Christian. And the reason for that answer would be varied. I'm a Christian because I'm an American. I'm a Christian because I was raised in the church. I'm a Christian because out of all the other options on the check boxes, this seems I'm a Christian because why are you a Christian? What makes you a Christian? Here's what Revelation would tell you. Here's who Christians are. They're the ones trying to follow the king in an empire that is trying to push them the opposite direction. Like the book of Revelation is about this empire that is anti-Christian, anti-Christ, anti-Christian. And as we dive into these seven churches, that's what we're going to be talking about is the empire. If I had a title for this, it's the empire and it's the king. The empire and the king. And as I've, again, I don't want to go verse by verse through every church, but here's what I see out of this. There's three warnings for us in the empire. And there's three encouragements for us trying to follow the king in the empire. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at warnings by the spirit through his word and encouragements from King Jesus for us in this room. So I want to pray and just ask God to do that for us as we kick off. Let's pray together. God, this uh, message could stay up in the clouds as we talk about the empire and the king. and So bring it down to our lives, in our hearts, in the real decisions, the real interactions, the real places we actually have to do life. Help us to live more faithfully because of the time we spent sitting under your word. Lord, we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just a quick like Bible study reminder. Revelation sort of has two camps you could go with this. One is the more popular and the sort of one by default a lot of you probably have and I have. Revelation is predicting future events. So largely in American evangelical culture, what Revelation has been has been this book that we have to decode to predict future events and people and situations and kingdoms and antichrist and all that so we know what's coming down the road that's one way and there's aspects of that in this book but in doing that we have left behind the primary reason i think this book was written it was not written so we could predict the future and be the people on earth with the secret sauce to what's going to happen with russia and all the things at play it was written to real people to prepare them for real life in their present day, and it's the same thing today. Here's why it was written. It was here written to prepare us for the present much more than it was written to predict the future for us. And in this, John is trying to prepare real churches. I just want to show you a map. Here's what we're going to walk through. So this is modern-day Turkey. I, by the grace of God and the generous givers of Redemption Church Gateway, got to have a great trip in Turkey on a mission trip. And I saw a lot of those cities. Ephesus was amazing. But that's modern-day Turkey. John is in prison on an island just off the coast of Ephesus. He's in Patmos. He's in Alcatraz. 
And he writes a letter, and it gets sent to Ephesus, and then up to Smyrna, and then up to Pergamos, and then Thyatira, and then down to Sardis, and then to Philadelphia, and then to Laodicea. This is a real letter that was delivered, passed around to the churches. Why? So that those people living in those times under that empire could be prepared to be faithful in their present-day circumstances. Why is this thing still around and why are we unpacking it today? So that us in our situation, in our cities, in our places, in our jobs, our vocations can be faithful in the present. That's why it's written to us. So we can be faithful in this modern day and age. Now I just want to just explain how I think Revelation is best used as a book for Christians. Rather than being like a decoder future message thing where we put together in like a crazy science. I think it's meant to be lived like glasses that are put on so you can see the world more clearly. We're about to talk about Babylon. Just let me show you. Go jump ahead to Revelation 17.5. I want to show you the first time Babylon is actually named in this book and how God describes Babylon. Seventeen five, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of the earth's abominations. That is Babylon. How did John's readers understand Babylon when it was brought up? I think they heard Babylon and they thought Rome. So the question is, why didn't John just write Rome, mother? of abominations and place of prostitution. Here's why. He knew what his readers would understand when he said Babylon, but also he wanted this text to be used in every generation of every Christian, of every church that ever exists to take and read and to put on like glasses so they can look out and see Babylon, the empire, clearly. Whether they're in Turkey 2,000 years ago, whether you're in Iran right now or whether you're in America, which has a lot of residual Christian effects, but there's still Babylonian-type things at play in our day and age. So we're supposed to take this, put on the glasses, and understand the empire and the king. That's why this was written, to them and for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to dissect the empire. We're going to get after this. Just so you know where Babylon comes from, just so Babel, Tower of Babel. What's the Tower of Babel? Genesis. It's the first time humans gathered together and tried to build a society apart from God. And almost like a middle finger to God. We got this. And they build a Tower of Babel, which means confusion. And they build it, build it, build it, build it, build it, build it. And they get to the top. And then God, in his humor and grace, says like this. God had to stoop down to see the top. They were going to build a tower to God, and God's like, well, you didn't get far enough, but I'll go down to see your little building there. And that Babel, Babylonian essence, is in every culture, in every human heart, in every country, in every workplace, in every educational institution, this self-made, self-centered, I will do this apart from God essence, that Babylonian empire thing is in everything. So we need this book. We need it a lot. That being said, that's a long introduction. Let's look at the three warnings we have as exiles living in the empire. Here's the first warning I think this text gives us. 
is be on guard from the seductive teaching of the empire. Be on guard from the seductive teaching of the empire. What am I talking about? Here's one way to get back into this modern day. What did it feel like to be a non-Christian living in the Roman Empire in Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, Ephesus, Laodicea? Here's, here's the, my scientific, academic, deeply researched answer. It felt good. Very good. The Roman Empire is the first time humans are like really building a potential empire that could rule the world. It had lots of comfort, lots of good, and according to the text, lots of food, lots of drinks, and lots of sex. In other words, it felt like all of us want to feel satisfied in every possible way. Babylon offered that. Just to show you where I'm bringing this up, let's look at a few of these churches. Ephesus is the first that's addressed. So Revelation 2, verse 6, look at that passage with me. Be on guard from the seductive teaching of the empire. Revelation 2.6 to the church at Ephesus. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he says that to Ephesus. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Or scroll over. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And also you have some of those same people, Nicolaitans, on your premises. Let's jump down to a third church. Revelation 2, verse 20. This is the church at Thyatira. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Pause right there. Just a summary statement of the teachers at play in the Roman Empire, the Nicolaitans and this Jezebel character, who Revelation, we're not going to read it, but God makes her sick for what she was doing. And what is their teaching? Nicolaitans, as far as we can understand, basically taught, taught overindulgence. Like, don't say no to anything. You do you. Billboard, we got it in our city here. Whatever you want, you do. Jezebel, what did she teach? No sexual boundaries. In every possible way, indulge yourself sexually and with food. What did it feel like to be in the Roman Empire? It felt good. Food, drink, sex. It's yours. What does that have to do with modern-day America? That doesn't seem applicable to me. In the most overweight, sexually expressive, self-indulgent culture maybe that's ever existed. We've got Jezebel and Nicolaitan vibes everywhere. Like I remember thinking about just my kids as they get older and, you know, they start to have to have talks about what's all going on. And I just thought to myself, I can't with integrity walk my boys through this talk and the talks about saying no to the stuff they want to say yes to with any integrity because there is almost nothing in my life that I say no to. What I want, I mostly get. And I know that's all of us. What snack you want, what vacation you want, we get it. 
Why? Because we live in the empire that feeds us this seductive teaching over and over and over and over and over again. So here's what I want to say, just a, a statement of observation about all of us. And then I want to give a quick little history lesson. All of us have a view, someone call it an ethic if you're smarter in philosopher terms, of sex and gender. All of us have a sexual ethic. And none of us came up with it on our own. It was handed to us without us even knowing it. And now we stand here with sexual ethics on gender, sexuality that we've been given without even realizing. So this teaching about an empire that is feeding us a line about sex and food and enjoyment is so applicable. It's like comical how applicable it is. But here's the history lesson. Here's the essence of how we got to where we are through four books. The one on the left, if any of you read that, I will buy you two Chipotle dinners. <laughs> I haven't read it. It's so thick, but it's a very famous book. The one on the far right is a kid's book. If you read it, great. But here's the, here's the flow of the sexual ethic that all of us have in this room. Charles Taylor, secular age, a Catholic philosopher, says we live in a secular age, meaning the transcendent, the sacred, the divine, God, eternity has been pushed out in our secular world as science and rational and objective thinking has sort of eliminated any sort of, so now it's like we live with this roof on our lives and our minds and anything transcendent about God, none of us ever see. It's all out there. We don't care. So God's pushed off to the side. The second book, Carl Truman, a modern day, he's a British guy. The Rise and Triumph of Modern Self. He would say, pick it up from Taylor, okay, God's been pushed off the shelf. Well, who's sitting on the shelf where God used to sit? He would say this, which is so fascinating and spot on. The human mind. Who's in charge now? Me. Descartes started it years ago. Old mathematician. I think, therefore, I am. I'm a self-described, self-determining, human-thinking person. I'm in charge. So now who's God? My brain is God. And I say what is. Fast forward, Nancy Piercy. This is the best book by far. Anybody who has any concern about younger people around you and what they believe, read that book. But her point is this. In the mind being in charge now, now even the body is subordinate to the mind, which is not Jewish or Christian. That's pagan. That's old Greek stuff. That's dualism. And the mind now gets determined even what the body is. So how do we live in a society where a seven-year-old can say, I am this, and what they're saying is in contrast to what their body actually is by the created, beautiful design God has? Because the brain is in charge, the mind's God, whatever the mind says, the mind gets. And fast forward to this book, George, it's one of a billion books out there, it's just about a kid transitioning, and it's all about, what well, this is what I think. And this is in charge. This is God, so it determines everything. This is our sexual world we live in. None of us escaped the exhaust and the sort of residual effects of all those books. It's just the world we live in. Now, the only hope we have is that we have a better answer than the empire provides. But just so you know, that's sort of where we're at. So here's my, I was trying to think through, like, this is a big topic, like, and I thought, I've, I've thought a lot. Do we talk enough about sex and sexual ethics in this church? And my pastoral hunch right now is no. Just my 
my gut. So here's my chance to just say a few things. And here's what I want to tell you all. You have to have a sexual ethic that feels old school, like grandpa archaic, to live faithfully in God's kingdom in this current empire. And that's for every age, every stage of life. You have to like, and here's what, don't hear me say this. You have to be perfect to be a Christian, especially sexually. That is not true. Sexual sinner, here. Sexual sinner, every person in this room. We're all broken. But we live in a world that has said we don't have to create any sort of boundaries around anything, especially our body and sex. And that is not from God. So you have to like, my sexual ethic is this. And then you have to be okay being the weird, buddy-duddy, lame-o, fill in the blank with whatever. And you have to be okay being the parent teaching your kids to be the lame, buddy-duddy, lame-o in our modern day and age. Why? Because the empire is so strong. And this is like almost comical at how much it's grown. Like even the, the, the artistry of the Bible the evil one starts as a snake. And in the book we're in now, he's a dragon, which means the empire is not staying neutral. He just keeps growing. And in the, around sexual ethics and indulgence and just getting what you want, you have to say something, and it's going to be weird. But Christians, we just got to say, we're in this together. And here, single people in the room, the hardest pastoral situation for me is help talking with single people trying to live faithfully to a sexual ethic that the Bible has given them because they are the only one playing that game and so much of me like the father in me wants to like I, I want to get you out of that and there's no getting out of it it is the world we live in and that's why Revelation was written, because they were facing hard stuff, too. And it can speak to us to this day still. So that's the first warning. Be wary of the indulgence of the empire. Second warning. Be aware. Oh, we got this. Of the self-sufficient, comfortable living of the empire. Be aware of the self-sufficient, comfortable living of the empire. Like, if you just do it, if you spend the next seven days, so there's seven churches, spend Monday through the next Sunday and read these, very quickly you're going to be like, oh, this is us. It's not that complicated. We're not the persecuted ones. Like, we're the comfortable ones. We're the fat, happy, and fine people as God is addressing us through this church. We are doing good by the world standards for the most part in our society. So let's just read a few of these. Revelation 2, verse 4. I want to read what he says to Ephesus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Pause right there. Just history lesson. Ephesus is this beautiful church. Beautiful city. It's like the New York of kind of the Roman culture at that moment. It also, 40 years or so prior to the writing of this, had this wonderful thing happen. Just kind of creep into town. Priscilla and Aquila become Christians. 
and they start spreading the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this man named Apollos comes and helps them teach. And then even greater than that, the apostle Paul, the apostle, comes into Ephesus and spends years there training, cultivating a Christian environment, a Christian community. So Ephesus is this booming early church, 40 years into the future. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. What happens in 40 years? The empire is very comfortable. America is very comfortable. Your job is very comfortable. The empire is not wooing us into holiness and self-sacrifice and discipline for the Lord. It's wooing us into a comfortable, nice, easy love where we can abandon the love we had at first. Jesus has this parable talking about throwing seeds on the ground. It's like the seed is the gospel you throw it. Some lands on good soil, some lands on rocky soil, some lands on thorny soil. This one sprouts up, makes a beautiful thing. Tons of fruit. Next one gets choked out, dies. The next one gets choked out in the thorns and dies. And he says, let me explain to you. The thorns are the cares of this world and the desire for worldly riches that choke out and take the word. The most precious message, any of us will hear, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the cares of this world take it away from us and choke it out. And we see it. It's happening in Ephesus as we speak. Next church, Laodicea. Revelation 3. Another comfortable church. Revelation 3, verse 15. This is what uh, Kyla read. I know your works. And this is probably the most famous. If you've been a Christian or walking in church for a while, you've heard this. You maybe used it. Some great youth pastor used it on Kyla to get him saved. I I have done it. I know the trick. (laughs) I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Why? For you say I'm rich and I've prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that actually you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea sits on this plateau. It's sort of on a higher ground. And uh, to the east, there's these hot springs, which are famous for the refreshingness that a jacuzzi would bring. And to the other side, there's like this cool drinking water springs. But the way Laodicea gets water is this aqueduct system that takes it forever to get up, get up, get up. And what all the historians say is by the time the water gets up there, it's tepid, it's kind of gross, it's got flies in it, and it's like lukewarm. So their drinking water is terrible compared to their surrounding cities. And that's the illustration Jesus is using. You are lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth. And he says, here's what I mean by that. You say you're rich and you need nothing. You're comfortable. You're good. Like, here's the question for us. What aspect of our lives relies on God to show up in any capacity? And to no fault of our own, most of our lives are on cruise control. It's just the culture we live in. But if we're going to take God's word serious, we have to take this serious. And God says, I spit you out of my mouth. We went to this training, all of us pastors for Revelation. It's one of our favorite professors Canadian guy named Michael Goheen, but he, he spent hours and hours and hours and hours just nugget after nugget out of the book of Revelation. And he said, I do want to end with this. As you read Revelation, there's only one church that applies to us, just so we're all on the same page. 
It's Laodicea. As your people pick up the book of Revelation, they have to read it as Laodiceans. If they don't, they're going to miss everything God has for them in this moment. Why? Because we live in a world that is rich, in need of nothing, and yet God would say, we're not realizing that we're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We live in a very comfortable world. I mean, the irony is not lost to me. Last night I'm sitting in bed deciding what show I'm going to watch and what dessert I'm going to enjoy while I watch this show. And then in a few hours I'm going to wake up and preach a message about having everything you need to be comfortable. Like, the, there's no super Christians in it. We're all in this. But here's the thing. Be aware of the empire that pulls us towards comfort, pulls us towards comfort, pulls us towards comfort. Most of our witnessing in this world, just so you know, I think, as we're around our family, friends, coworkers, is going to be when we make decisions that are intentionally uncomfortable for us, and they want to know, why did you do that? Well, let me tell you why. I think this world is a lot bigger than what you see, feel, touch, taste, eat. I think there's a king that I'm following, and he told me to do that. Beware of the comfort of the kingdom. Here's the third warning. Be prepared for suffering when you go against the empire. Only two churches out of the seven are not rebuked by King Jesus. And they're the two churches that have the harshest environment to be Christians in. Smyrna is the first. Revelation 2, verse 9. Go there. Here's how Jesus addresses the church at Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Go to Revelation 3.8. Let's look at Philadelphia. Behold, I know your works. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you have kept my word and are not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. There's three options with suffering. As you choose to become a Christian, as you eyes are open to the glories of Jesus and the fact that he forgives your sin, and then you take your first step into the world that is dominated by empire, and you choose to be the weird one, you're going to face suffering of a variety of kinds. Our brothers and sisters in other countries obviously have it far worse, but we're still going to face it. Here's your three options. You can just compromise before it happens so that you don't have to deal with it. I call it the high school dilemma. Do I want to be the weird Christian guy? Or do I want to fit in? I chose to fit in. A lot of us chose to fit in. A lot of us didn't know better because Jesus hadn't been presented to us yet. But as we walk out into our jobs, especially as we think back to the sexual ethic piece, in an empire that has strong views of sex and gender and what is right and what is wrong, and we walk out and we've got to decide, all right, I'm just, it's not worth it. I'm going to compromise on the front end. You can compromise through practicing, Revelation says, or tolerating, Revelation says. It uses both words to describe our posture towards the culture and the empire. Here's the second one, and this is one that scares me most because I'm a weenie. You can tap out 
so you can get out of it. I'm like, I have zero pain tolerance. I read these stories of people getting killed for their faith. It's like, dude, I would last a half a second in that situation. And in our day and age, we're not facing that currently, but we're facing other things that are just like squeezing on us. And it's like, is this worth it? I'm out. Jesus tells the church of Philadelphia, be faithful unto the end. Do not tap out. Or the third thing is you can stay faithful in the middle of it until the end. Here's what I realize as I'm parenting my kids, and I've just been, I've been a Christian now for 15 years, and I've been a pastor for 10. Like, here's the basics of Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's you're going to be the weird one in an increasingly normal world. Are you ready for that? And older folks in the room, like, there was a time where it was like Christianity was the norm. And my atheist brother was the weird one. And that has shifted and is shifting and will continue to shift. Do you want to be the weird one? That's what you're signing up for. Now, how does Jesus want us to read this text? You could read the facts and the words here. But what tone does Jesus want us to hear as he's speaking? All of this is in red, which means it's all Jesus. Is it a harsh, dictator-like, do it this way? Is it challenge? Is it? I think the tone Jesus has through all this is way more encouraging than we realize. Here's why. Babylon and Rome is just sort of addressed in terms of how it's affecting the people. But the main character through each of these letters to each church is still Jesus Christ. He wants us to see him bigger than we see the empire. So here's what I think his three encouragements are for us as we try to follow the king. Here's the first encouragement, and I'll have it on the screen. The king's glory is a multifaceted motivator. And you see the words underneath there? The words of him who, just a little Bible study tip. Because part of what I pray about, at least with the book of Revelation as your pastor, is how do I make this book less crazy and weird? And it's crazy and weird, but there's moments where it's like, oh, I could grab hold of those handlebars. For example, each church is addressed the exact same way by Jesus. Same words. And he always starts with this. The words of him who, and he describes himself. So let's just walk through. Again, I'm going to make you walk through a lot. Ephesians 2 verse 8, or 2, 1. The church at Ephesus. How does Jesus self-declare himself to the church at Ephesus before he goes in with the words of affirmation and challenge? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Just a reminder, the lampstands are the churches. So it's Jesus walking amongst the churches, and the angels in his hand are the leaders of the church. Some think they're angels. Some think they're like the church leaders. But Jesus says, I'm walking amongst you, and I've got this church at Ephesus. Go down to the next one. Church at Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 8. To the him who what? The words of the first and last, who died and came to life, is how he's described there. Go to Revelation 2, verse 12. Church at Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 2.18, Thyatira, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
Revelation 3.1, now to Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I hold it all. Revelation 3.7, go down to Philadelphia now. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And then finally, to the church that we most line up with, Laodicea 3.14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Do you see what God's doing? If you were here last week, all those words were just pulled from Revelation 1. So it's like the picture of Jesus is given in Revelation 1. And then John, as he starts to address the churches, just takes one aspect of the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus, the king. And he takes it and he uses it as a motivating factor to each church. The eyes like fire, the feet like bronze, hair like wool. I hold the stars. I am the one who is in charge of all things. Which tells me this. So much of Christianity, if Christianity is being faithful in the empire hinges on your picture of Jesus that you get to look to by faith. And here's where a lot of Christians sort of stop. It's what got you into it. It's Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm forgiven. I take communion. I love, I love amazing grace. And you walk into the Christian life, and when you think about Jesus, it's Jesus on a cross. And that is good, right, and necessary, but it's not the final chapter, and it's not the full picture. John does not once use cross language to motivate the churches. He uses glorious king language. For example, Smyrna, this tiny little house church where people are being tortured over and over and over again. How does he address those that are facing death? The words of him who died and came to life. I mean, picture being someone in the church at Smyrna and your brother just got hauled off. And they're like, we got a letter from John to the church at Smyrna and you're waiting. What's Jesus going to say? I'm the one who died and came to life. Stay faithful, church. That's a beautiful picture. Church at Thyatira, this church was losing the battle of the sexual ethic given by the empire. It was a lot like us. They were just getting kicked around. They could not keep up with the empire and all that it said about sex and sexual ethics. And the king, Jesus, writes them a note and he signs it. He who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. It's he who writes this letter. Meaning I see everything. There is no hidden closet in the kingdom of God, Christian. But more than that, I'm also the one with the burnished bronze feet. I step down onto the same earth you're on, and I walk the same steps of life, and I was tempted in every possible way, yet without sin. So, Thyatira, stop relying on your own strength and rely on mine. I'm the proven one, not you. I got this. Jesus is a multifaceted motivator. Here's the next thing. He is a judge with zero blind spots. 
Here's the language that you see throughout all this. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Let's just go through them. Revelation 2.2. I know your works, Ephesus, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Verse 9. I know your tribulation. In your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that you are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 13, next church. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What a statement. I know that where you live is really satanic. It's brutal. Jesus says, I get it. That's a hard place to do life. I see that. I know. Verse 19. I know your works, church, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. I see that you're even growing. You think you're going so slow and you're stumbling through this, but I see growth. The church at Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. The angel of the church in Sardis, words of him who has the seven spirits, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are actually dead. Revelation 3, 8. I know your works. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut, and I know that you have little power, but you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. And then finally, our church, Revelation 3.15, Laodicea, North Mountain, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you either be cold or hot. I know. I know. Perfect knowledge, I know. There's two sides to this. There's the like, oh, no, he knows. I got a call when I was in, just uh, outside of grad school. My best friend was joining the special forces, and the Army was doing their due diligence. Hey, is Todd a good character for this? And they just started asking questions. Have you ever seen Todd intoxicated? Yes, yes, I have. How have you seen him intoxicated? What were you doing while he was intoxicated? <laughs> have you ever seen Todd drive recklessly? Have you ever seen... And it was the closest to Judgment Day I've ever felt. Like, this is what it's going to be like. I've got to give an answer to all this. Thank God Jesus has covered it, but he knows it all. But also throughout this, the tone from King Jesus is, I know those things that you are doing that you feel like nobody notices. Single moms. Stay-at-home moms. Teachers grinding it out. In a school system that is hard. I know your works. I know your toil. I know, I know, I know. I see you and I will reward you one day. So church, just remember. Jesus says, I know. Takes us to our final one. What is he going to do with all that knowledge? Here's what he's going to do. He's going to reward us. The king is a generous rewarder. To the one who conquers I will. Now, every one of these churches, we're not going to go through all of them. This is exactly what Jesus says. To the one who conquers, that word conquer is the, where we get the word Nike. To the one who is victorious. To the one who is overcoming. To the one who prevails. To the one who is strong and mighty for my name's sake. I will give the tree of life. I will give you uh, life after death. I will give you, I will give you, I will give you. To who? The one who conquers what is a christian according to the book of revelation if you this is all you had in your bible and you tried to describe a christian and all you use was revelation here's the description the ones who conquer the ones who will overcome 
the ones who will face the empire faithfully. That's our job, Christians. I want to end with the story. The story goes that there was a young man in the church at Smyrna who was there probably as this letter was read for the first time. His name was Polycarp. He goes on to be a key church leader, a key church father in the early church. He was sitting there as this was read for the first time to the church at Smyrna. The words of the first and last who died and came to life. And Polycarp learns how to live in the empire while following the king. And it says that at 86 years old, he was brought to the point where they were going to kill him because he refused to burn incense for the emperor. And it says this. Here's his statement. 86 years I've served him. He has done me no wrong. How then I could, bl- how could I ever blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of the everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And Polycarp was set ablaze, yet the fire did not take hold, so they had to spear him to death. 86-year-old man who died victorious, if and only if you take revelation to be God's word. Who died confident because he knew the one that said you could not be hurt by the second death. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to over-glorify our lives. So we walk out of here like my kids pounding their chest after a basic reception in football. <laughs> but the reality is we're all going to face these moments in the, emp- in the empire where we're offered incense. Call it whatever you want. Do you want this? And you're going to have to make decision over and over and over again. And here's the gut thing going on in all of us. All of us face those moments and we all ask, is it worth it? Is the empire and all that it offers worth it? Or is choosing to follow the king worth it? Is it worth it? And Revelation is trying to tell the churches it's worth it. Even though everything else about this world is telling you no, it's worth it. I wrote this down. The king has spoken. The empire is alive, but the king is more alive. And here's what Jesus ends every church with. And I'm going to end it. He who has ears, let him hear. Meaning, it's yours now to do what you need to do with the message of the revelation given to the churches. Let's pray together. God, we don't want to be... gimmicky Christians. We don't want to over-hype, oversell, overplay our role on this earth. At the same time, we don't want to uh, not let reality be what you say it is. And we are in a battle currently. We are following the king who has overcome the world, but we are still in the empire. That like you told the evil one, seeks to kill to steal, to destroy while presenting itself as he who brings life. So God, I just pray that each of us in this room would hear what your spirit has to say. That the areas where we feel the empire squeezing us, where we feel this world and all that it's offering squeezing us most, that we would confess that to you, bring it into the light with others, 
and rely on your word for strength in a world that is hard to be faithful in. We want to be the ones who conquer and receive from you the crown of glory, receive from you life everlasting, receive from you the tree that never stops giving fruit, receive from you. God, thank you that Jesus did the hard work to bring us into your kingdom. Now, by your spirit, help us to do the hard work of following you, even and especially when it's hard. In Jesus' name we pray.